Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out, I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Simon Grove, who is a musician, songwriter, producer, and engineer based out of Sydney, Australia. With his studio business in full swing, as well as a performance career as a bassist with the instrumental great Pliny, Simon uses a deep background in music to create deep and emotive productions, and they sound pretty amazing. He's worked with a ton of artists internationally, such as Protest the Hero, Intervals, and a bunch of others. Of course, Pliny. All the Pliny stuff is him. Anyways, I introduce you, Simon Grove. Welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks very much for having me, man. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Just a usual day, really, so far. What does that mean? Get up, eat, start my computer up, and get used to listening to a whole lot of snare drums all day. That's pretty much what I'll be doing today. That sounds brutal. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm very, very particular about uh, a specific mix I'm doing at the moment, and I'm trying to keep it as natural as possible, but there's a few slight shifts in the snare tuning. So instead of just copying the same snare settings across each track, it doesn't really work. They need to be all adjusted, and that's kind of what I've been working on lately anyway. I mean, you know, amongst the actual songs, that's definitely been one of the uh, the hurdles to maintain. So how are you approaching that? Basically, it's just paying attention to where the fundamental of the snare is now sitting in each song. You know, um, I'll usually cut a lot of low end out to get some of the kick drum out of the mics of the snare. Sometimes I'll be cutting too much because the snare has dropped down closer to the kick. So it's just about paying attention to that sort of stuff. Or sometimes it's cranked up a little higher. These things are very, very minor movements. This is not like a, a major uh, tuning issue. And for the record uh, that it actually is, it's kind of acceptable. It's like a kind of jazz fusion-y sort of thing in a way. Mm -hmm. So it does, uh, yeah, I know, I guess a little bit of like organic shifting of that sort of style is acceptable and 
kind of adds to it, I guess. So yeah, I'm, I'm down with it. If I can make it work, that's all. <laughs> is it within the song or from song to song? Oh, song to song. Yeah, definitely song to song. So that's definitely not as bad as, you know, the bridge isn't like a completely different tuning or anything like that. That's when it's really a problem. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. When you have a totally different snare pitch in multiple places of the song. That's the worst. Again, unless it's intentional, I mean, that's kind of where you start considering samples or what you can do with any sort of replacement like that. What's your uh, motivation to keep it natural? Usually it's always just like the the actual genre and, and the intent behind the production itself, just coming from the artist. I mean, I never really want to be that guy that jumps in on records and just forces everything to sound like the same record, especially if like the particular musician or artist is a really, uh, I don't know, has like quite an original sound or is trying to do something that's a little left of field. I definitely try and uh, retain that. So... The idea behind it, I guess, from the client was I was told that it was pretty much a a live rhythm section. So bass player and drummer is all live, but everything else is meant to sound like an electronic project. So Interesting. lots of synths and lots of crazy stuff going on, which is sick. And I'm actually really loving it, but it's uh, it's one of those things where that's a very specific request. And I want to make sure that I don't just funnel it right down the, uh, the typical sort of, you know, prog metal thing that I'm usually doing. So I try and let their stuff really speak and just, yeah, keeping it natural is pretty much the easiest way to do that, I guess. It's interesting. You just said the prog metal thing that you're usually doing, but your clients sound radically different from each other. Well, that's, I mean, that's good then. I listen to this stuff all so much that it just becomes whatever. If that comes across that way, then I guess that's definitely the goal I'm going for. So that's a good thing, I guess. Do you think that uh, uniqueness is created at the mixing stage or that it, it has to be built into the DNA? I definitely think for the better half, it has to already be in the DNA of the song or the, the artist or whatever's going on. A mix can definitely drastically change how something is received by you know the listeners and stuff like that or even how a band kind of comes across. You can, you can give like a, a softer sort of, you know, more, I guess, gentle rock band a heavier mix and they can kind of almost appeal to a much heavier market that way um but yeah in the essence of it it all comes down to the songwriting it definitely just comes down to uh what was originally intended for the song in the first place i think and the better the songwriter the more that is just obvious to the mix engineer since you work with such particular musicians because of the genres you work with i imagine that they all have very very specific asks it doesn't seem to me like it would be the type of client where they just want you to invent their sound for them. Yeah. Actually, most of the time uh, I'll get a client and they'll usually just say, do your thing. I think that usually relies on me to um, tap in again to what they were originally intending. Sometimes I'll, I'll hit them up with some questions and see what they were trying to do with their whole project and see what they're trying to really achieve first. References are always an easy start, you know, get someone to say what their favorite records are and what they were influenced by when they were writing the tunes and stuff like that. Most of the time I'll actually just dive in, but at the same time, I do just like to kind of communicate and make sure that everyone's on board. I'll usually do like a full mix of uh, one song when I'm starting a project, pretty much get it to like, you know, 85, 90% there, send it to the client and just go, am I... You know, it might be considered a good mix, but it may just not be considered the kind of good mix that they want. So yeah. I'm like, am I in the ballpark of where you guys were trying to head? And 
So far, every time it's been yes. So that's a good thing. But, uh, you know, if, if someone was like, no, nah, this is not what we we're going for, then we just have to figure it out and, you know, find a way, I guess. Sounds to me like they trust your instincts. And uh, I wonder if that's because of the fact that you play in the style, like you actually play in the style for Pliny and that's got to go a long way. It's definitely been a huge help just in general for me to really relate to the more musical side of things. I guess like, you know, detaching from the technical engineer headspace and feeling what was trying to be, uh, I guess, intended in the songwriting and like kind of hearing the, the moods and the ideas and stuff like that. And even just like the ideas behind the, the actual physical playing. Um, so it definitely helps having that that side of me. Yeah, I guess I guess that kind of comes off more naturally. Maybe that's where it is. I've never really kind, kind of tried to assess that, but um, that, that very well may be it. I feel like this is the kind of music where unless you really know it, it's probably going to be hard to pull it off. It kind of like uh, different types of extreme metal. I mean, there's some people who don't listen to it who can pull off mixing it or producing it, but it's super rare. It's super, super rare. Usually it's done by people who are in it for people who are in it. And I feel like progressive music is kind of a similar thing. Yeah, it's definitely a very, um, you know, involved process and an involved genre to the point where like, you know, the, the average engineer has to know so much. Like if you were to get the average prog band into a, a, just a commercial studio, they would probably be throwing a lot of like things that seem like general, general terminology to the band at the engineer and the engineer may not really catch on to that. You know, if they were talking about certain, you know, amp processes or certain sounds or referencing really particular guitar tones on records or drum samples or anything like that, it's, um, it's not just like, oh, we kind of want like a modern sound or we want like a rock sound or we want this. It's like they'll be going into like types of pickups and really like outlining the absolute details that, that come across almost like a um, the essentials for prog in a way that they've got to have this stuff to nail that sound. Yeah, it's it's funny unless you're really involved in that scene. It's It probably seems like quite a lot of work. Touring and stuff like that involves me, you know, just surrounds me in a lot of sort of uh, similar people like that. So I'm constantly hearing about all the new gear and all the new things that people are trying to chase. And I guess it kind of keeps me up to date as well. I mean, I'm aside from just being a typical gear nerd like most of us and keeping up to date that way. But um, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to try and try and separate from just the, you know, the usual commercial studio thing to, yeah, you do pretty much have to be like a prog musician to produce prog in a way. I mean, to really understand it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's actually something funny that I've come across in the past with trying to find assistance and stuff like that. Like I've tried to delegate more drum editing and stuff like that. Just some of the more the smaller tasks off when I start a record so that I can uh, just I can generally be a little bit more efficient and stuff like that and, and work on multiple things while someone else is taking care of that stuff and uh the one thing that i've really found to be good in in a, in a certain assistant is like knowing what the hell is going on in the drums like when someone's playing like some kind of complex you know polyrhythm or some weird time signatures or when there's meant to be a flam on that beat or when there isn't meant to be a flam on that beat and stuff like that like you almost need a drummer that's just as good as the guy that did the recording to understand what the hell's going on just to edit the drums <laughs> it's like you can't just hit quantize to 16th and just hope for the best i think that to be a really good drum editor you have to have some degree of musical maturity like it's not something that you can just learn how to do as a technical task. I mean, you can learn the technical part of it pretty easily, but understanding the musical intent 
and like you said, understanding what's actually going on, that takes an actual musical understanding. Yeah, it's it's honestly probably the the one thing that uh, I look for the most outside of just like, you know, don't ruin my drums when you edit them. <laughs> if, if they can get that and then, yeah, it's like it's almost just as important to actually understand because I luckily haven't had anything happen yet. Uh, and I say yet only because, you know. Because it's going to. Any, anything's possible, yeah. It, of course, yeah, it's probably going to. Um, but I haven't had anyone kind of just completely you know, shift triplets into 16ths or something like that and do some real wild stuff yet. So I consider myself lucky for the time being. How does someone get the chance to edit for you? Like what goes into that? In the most like more recent projects where I've really been into a lot of my own drum engineering, which is not so much the case just because, you know, most of my clients are from overseas. So it's very rare. And especially during COVID, I'm not flying anywhere to go track drums. When I'm engineering stuff, I really notice, you know, every single detail to the point where because I was there from the beginning, if something shifts in the editing stage, it's very obvious to me. And I'm extremely particular about my drum editing to the point where, you know, I don't just grab every note and lock it to the grid. Some things like Pliny's last record, I would pick and choose my spots. Like I definitely like a gridded sound, especially for something as dense and uh, layered as something like Pliny's record, but just because I think note length is extremely important. You know, if a kick drum resonates for too long and there's a million kick drums going on, then it just becomes this big blur of low end. Just a muddy pile of shit, basically. Yeah, exactly. And it's got nothing to do really with the drummers of that scene because, you know, a lot of the guys I'm working with are are phenomenal, but it's more so just the sense that... That's a way that you can screw the drummer if he pisses you off. Yeah, exactly. But um, in terms of editing, I guess like with any of the guys that I've worked with in the past, and I, I bounce around a fair bit just trying things and, you know, seeing what people can do, I just tell them how I I want it. I tell them any spots where I need some sort of flexibility or maybe I tell them not to edit it and maybe I'll just brush up the bridge or something like that. If it's like a really washy open jazz section or something weird like that that needs next to no quantizing or zero quantizing. So when you're talking about the importance of note length, like for instance with kick drums, are you saying that when you're editing the drums, you will actually edit the note lengths or are you talking about the space between the notes? No, it's more so just considering the resonance of the drums that were recorded and I guess the speed of the song or the speed of like, you know, the average fill in the song. Like say if you've got really long, like resonating toms, I think it's really important to understand that come mixing and you start to gate things and and shape the sort of envelope of the the drum, how much they're going to just bleed over the top of each other or how much they're really going to bump into each other too much. You know, the shorter... I mean, I guess if you reference something like Tech Death, that stuff translates so well because it's just every drum is is pretty short, especially in the closer mics. Like things are just very... um, tight and snappy and you hear every single hit because the next one isn't, you know, pushing over the top of the other. I'm just kind of preempting when I come to mix that I know that if there's a really particularly fast burst of kick drums that I'd probably want them just gridded just to make sure that, you know, I'll have some sense of control over that clash and that sort of frequency spillover, I guess, if you want to kind of give it a term. So I guess it requires a lot of attention to detail and nuance to go between gritting bursts and leaving everything else alone, like understanding as opposed to say gritting the entire song or not gritting Mm. anything. Like it seems like some people like to do one or the other or just do some sections by hand. But I think that actually gritting 
just specific little bursts, fills and things like that, I think requires a much greater attention to detail. Yeah, I, d- I definitely think that's most likely where any of the benefits of my mixes are in just a, a you know, general sense is, is that I think all of it comes down really just to the, the attention to detail. Like I've, I've got cool stuff and I've got cool gear and it's, you know, just like everyone else does. But it's, I think that the benefit of when I jump in on something is really just me paying attention to that sort of stuff, which is very uh, unexciting to the average person. And when someone asks you, you know, they want to pick your brains on Instagram or something about what some secret is with this thing, it's, it's always that stuff. It's never really some secret plugin or something like that. Well, it's funny because I think that when people are secret hunting, they want you to tell them something easy. Like something that they can just do easily that'll just solve their problem for them when in reality, the answer is very simple. Attention to detail. Don't cut corners. Really pay attention to what needs to be happening and fix only what needs to be fixed. I don't know. I think that the true answer, it doesn't really help many people because if you say, yeah, attention to detail, that's the secret. What does that actually mean to them? Like you kind of got to figure it out for yourself. So it's kind of, I feel like it's really, really hard to get that through people's heads because it's so subjective. Yeah. And it's also just really hard to to hear from like, you know, say you're a beginner. It's hard to be able to teach yourself how to listen in such a specific way. Like, you know, referencing something like a musician, they can hear pitches and they can start figuring out intervals and things like that. You know, it comes down to the basic stuff of when you start learning or, or teaching audio and you st- you tell someone like how to hear compression or how to hear like a, a high pass filter on something and you can start going through and, and putting out those details. And, you know, it's just pretty much that stuff, but just way more layered and way more in a, in a more like, you know, complicated and dense situation where you're listening to a whole drum kit and trying to think of where there's too much low end in each mic and stuff like that. And it's, yeah, like you said, it's really not any of the easy stuff that ever just jumps off the page and it's like, oh, I could do that. That's fine. It's it's just a matter of like almost having a checklist in your head of things that you always have to do every mix you do. I guess if you're trying to be consistent or trying to maintain a certain sound that you're going for and just doing that. Does that checklist change? Yeah. Yeah. Especially again, it's, it's like the, um, you know, really paying attention to the genre and the intent behind the songwriting. So it seems like it would be multiple checklists depending on the scenario. Yeah, it's a very prog way of going about things, really. Like a pilot, like if a you know engine is falling off, one checklist. Engine's on fire, different checklist. <laughs> it's a different one going on, for sure. And I think that to get to the point of where you can just uh, experience a challenge in a mix or just something that needs attention and having basically the, not the solution, but I guess, like you said, the checklist pop up in your head of, uh, okay, I need to listen for this, 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 that, and that, as opposed to a different situation where it would be a different list to get to the point where that just happens takes a lot of work and many, many years and working on lots of projects. And I think building the habit of attention to detail, uh, gets it to where, I think you don't need to think about it as much anymore. Like I've heard a lot of super experienced engineers and mixers say that when they hear a problem, they'll immediately think to themselves, all right, first uh, this EQ with this compressor, with that setting, with uh, then this and that and that is the way to solve that problem. But to get to the point where that just pops into their head is, you know, 
a decade or more of work. Oh, for sure, for sure. And it's it's kind of you know interesting to to work on your habits and your I guess your safety nets that you rely on for that sort of stuff. I mean, I started when I started sort of trying to get more professional with my mixing and stuff. Like you know, probably over ten years ago now, I was working with a lot of friends and just like random stuff that I would write myself that was pretty much just a lot of like death metal based stuff, tech death sort of stuff, anything similar around there. And that's kind of where I had my my foundations in. I always liked, you know, the typical prog stuff too, dream theater and stuff growing up. But I definitely think I focused a lot on, yeah, death metal, tech, death metal and all that sort of stuff. I soon realized that when I started working in other stuff outside of, of that field, I was completely overcooking it in certain parts and even things like guitar editing. Like, you know, if there's like some obscene extremely technical breakdown or something like that I would go in and you got to do the usual thing of cutting out all the silences and making things ultra tight and razor sharp and then you go and do that on something like a Pliny record which I've never done luckily but um, if I was to do it on a Pliny record you kind of want some of that you know uh, the hands moving around on the fretboard a bit between the, the gaps you want some of the like the pick that may be a little early or a little late on the beat to kind of hit the strings and just leave it there you know you're not trying to get it directly on the kick drum all the time and stuff like that do you think that for people who came up through extreme metal, you have to work so hard to get one of those mixes to sound clear. You have to put in so much work cleaning everything up and uh, it takes so long to get to the point where it doesn't sound like fucking garbage. (laughs) So for someone to get to the point where they're putting out something that's decent even in extreme metal, they have to have... uh, really condition themselves to try and fix every single thing. And so then when they get into a style of music that has more space, is looser, it's like they don't know what to do with themselves. Yeah, that was honestly like probably a a pretty hefty learning curve for me. I don't think I ever had like a major shock moment where I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? But it was definitely like, I guess it would have been when I just started working with Pliny um, before I was mixing his stuff, I played bass on one of his EPs and stuff like that. And we kind of hung out and did some things like that. I would get similar projects coming into the studio just to mix and stuff like that. And I would, yeah, definitely just have to be a lot more aware of those things and not try and just completely um, destroy it with obscene kick drums and stuff like that. (laughs) Well, you have to kind of know when to pull back. Yeah. I think that's hard for some people. It forces you to actually listen and feel it and make a judgment call. This feels right. Just let it, let it be. And I think it's definitely like also a progression of where music heads, like if there was to be like a somewhat, you know, I guess tech death vibe in a prog song that I was working on, maybe the intention behind it is not to have it like a tech death mix, but it's just have the playing come across like it's prog musicians trying to do a tech section, you know, where there is a, there is a little, you know, it's a little loose and it's a little more laid back and it's not as surgical. And that's a vibe in itself. I mean, you look at stuff like any of the stuff Animals as Leaders is doing, for example, where there is some absolutely obscene things going on in, in from a musician's point of view, down to sheer speed and technicality to composition and stuff like that. But um, they're not trying to just lock everything to the grid and just absolutely... I don't know, come across in that in that way. But there's a certain charm about their stuff that when they do go into those moments, it's its own thing and it's kind of part of their signature. And I guess that's a huge influence, obviously, to, to the scene that I'm working in. That you can kind of hear just a regular band playing some really crazy shit, but they're not trying to sound like an absolute cyborg. 
they just come across like humans still being cyborgs, <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. In some ways, it's a lot more impressive or almost mm. in every way, it's a lot more impressive. Yeah, I mean, it's almost closer to, to seeing it live. You know, when you actually witness the band that you've been listening to for months do that crazy part of the record and they nail it live, it's almost like, oh, there's a whole different, whole different vibe to it live for sure. So people who make prog talk a lot about feel, musicianship, phrasing, writing. But at the same time, there's this intense focus on technicality to where I think critics of prog will say that that's... Uh, the priority. I don't think it's true, but you can kind of see where the critics are coming from. But what's your opinion on the marriage between the uber technicality along with everything else? Like, how do you think they work together? I mean, obviously, the first thing with prog is is within that genre, there's a lot of movement uh, in terms of how far you want to be leaning more towards the process technical sound or do you want to be more of an organic you know band in the room sort of thing or do you want to sit somewhere in between i guess you've got opeth all the way to cyborgs and everything in between yeah it's it's a matter of really finding that sweet spot for the band but then i guess when it comes to ultimately i think you really just want to have the technical capabilities to express what you want to express which is kind of the age-old thing that everyone should technically be doing, I guess. I think if you're trying, like, for example, I, you know, referencing Plenty because it's something that I really have, you know, quite a lot of work in and I'm quite involved in the production of those records, seeing every sort of stage of it come come together, it's like there's there's a lot of imperfections in Pliny's music and, you know, imperfections not said in a negative way. I'm not trying to lose a gig right now, but um, in, in more so in a way that, like, you know, it's, it's definitely the charm and he understands that, which is really good. Uh, He's not sitting there, you know, um, panicking about some of the noises in his guitar takes or just how he picks a certain riff or something like that. He's he's still very aware when he he does some things, but it's more so, uh, I guess, yeah, it's that sense of just being aware of of where your um, ability of your technical ability sits within your creative ability, and just applying that in the right ways. Yeah, it's it's interesting that people will call those things imperfections. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's such a bad term. Because I don't really see them that way. I see them as more just uh, the sound of a person playing an instrument. Yeah, and I, I honestly think that is um, a huge part of the characteristic of each record. I'm very much into that sort of stuff when I'm producing or engineering a record and I'm able to sit in on the part that someone's tracking and especially stuff like vocals or in, in you know, a, a instrumental based thing like the lead guitar stuff. I really like making sure that while it's important to have things, you know, in time and in tune, it's a really good thing to focus in on just kind of like the, the phrasing and even like the rhythmic sensibility of it all, whether it's like incredibly, uh, you know, behind the beat or if it's like really pushing or if there's a certain, you know, feel behind it that just has to be insanely energetic or really dynamic and soft. All those things are kind of, when you tap into that as a musician, you start playing a completely different way. And sometimes things aren't perfectly in time. Uh, Sometimes things aren't perfectly in tune. And it's definitely worth being aware of when they are and aren't in time and in tune. But it can be a really useful tool, I think, to just have that kind of self-awareness or have someone around you that's engineering it that's aware of that stuff. I think awareness and intentionality make a big difference because there's mistakes and sloppy playing involve being out of tune and out of time. But at the same time, playing 
some things out of time and slightly out of tune works better. And so knowing the difference between when it's a mistake and when it's right, I think comes down to being very, very aware of the musical intent. It's hard to explain. And, but it's one of those things that you either understand it when you hear it or you don't. Yeah. And I mean, I guess like, you know, for, for a basic way of putting it, if you want to reference something as common as, you know, that's in almost all productions, at least guitar based productions is you can reference something like the, this standard left and right hard panned rhythm guitars. The beauty behind that sound is that there are slight imperfections again, whatever that term means, um, in pitch and timing. Because if there weren't... Yeah, because if they weren't, it would just sound weird. Like we've all, we've all done that where we've recorded one guitar, duplicated it and panned it onto the other side of the speaker and it just doesn't sound right at all. Sounds stupid. Yeah, so when you nail a take and you do that in left and right, it's a different thing. You know, you, it sounds good. It doesn't sound... Even though there technically is things that are different in the timing and different in the pitch, it's not a bad thing and it's worth uh, definitely being aware of. That's pretty much how it all relates, whether it's a lead guitar or a vocal. There's those little imperfections, I guess, that are the, the real beauty. Have you ever tracked a guitar player that's so tight you know, you're tracking a left and a right rhythm and they play something so identical that it shifts into mono for a second. Yeah, absolutely. The first time that happened, that weirded me the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, it happened quite a lot with a, a record I did. I don't know if you know Stephen Taranto. I do not. He's an, an Australian dude that um, I started a band with. Well, he's, he's, in, he's in my band from, uh, I have a band called The Helix Nebula that isn't super active right now, but we never really like, you know, quit or anything like that. We just all got caught up in life. You know, I started mm -hmm. doing a lot of stuff with Pliny and so did the other guitarist. Anyway, Steven started writing his own solo stuff and I um, I produced and played bass on it and mixed it and stuff like that um, a couple of years ago. And that guy is one of the most absurdly, uh, like very technical, but in, insanely musical dudes um, that I've ever kind of hung out with. And his guitar tracks, the funniest thing, like he's He's very much like not too confident in his own technical ability as a as an engineer. So he recorded all his guitar DIs and just sent them to me. And he's like, I don't know how to edit guitars, so I just try and do the most tightest takes as possible. I was like, well, that's a good start. That's yeah, kind that's, of what we always want to go yeah, for. Yeah, that's and positive. Then that's a good and start. he would send me through like DIs and some of the takes were like, and I'm talking like these this this stuff is absolutely obnoxiously technical. And he's doing like 30, 40 second takes of these huge passages and just ripping sections. And um, not only would they be like these huge phenomenal takes that sound great, but they would also, yeah, phase cancel each other out because they were just so tight with the other part. And it's just like, I had to go in and start editing things so they would be kind of out. Edit and like, I'd have to honestly, yeah, I'd have to genuinely do that, which was kind of ridiculous. There were some moments where I had to go in and plug in a guitar myself and use whatever amp or stuff that we were reamping with and just to make things a bit different here and there, which is kind of hilarious. Well, it proves the point about perfections versus imperfections. It really does. You actually need them or it's going to sound weird. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. It starts to become a little bit harder to pinpoint when it comes to gridding things because mm. some things sound really great gridded while others don't. And that becomes more of a subjective thing. But the left and right rhythms summing themselves to mono is not a subjective thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it just becomes very strange and uh, you kind of lose all the vibe of the mix for that, you know, split second that it does it. Yeah. The perfection is the mistake, which is crazy. Yeah, 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 for sure. That was a good one of you to point out because I think most of the other ones are super down to the down to interpretation. Mm. 
of what the music's supposed to be. Yeah, for sure. For sure, definitely. Things like how long should the silence be? How much hand noise should be in here? Is it okay if this note got flubbed? The timing shifts a little in this spot. It's a little tuny here, a little... That's all subjective stuff. I mean, Absolutely. those things objectively did happen, I guess, but whether or not you think it's a mistake is purely subjective. Yeah, and I mean, again, sometimes it can be almost coming down to a complete creative choice. You could either go one way or the other and it either wouldn't sound bad, but it would just very finely uh, funnel the production into a certain sound and a certain, not like a genre or anything that aggressive, but yeah, it would just have a, you know, we've all heard that one band that we really like that usually has like quite organic mixes and they do that one record that's really like much heavier on the processing and it's almost sounds like a different band or, or they're trying a very, very different sound. And really it's just like maybe some, you know, gone a bit harder on the guitar editing, but it sounds so different to what we're used to. There's a thing on Pliny's last record where uh, it was a piano track by our keys player, Dave. Once I'd compressed everything and, and, and processed it properly to sit in the mix, there was like a really, there's like a, a solo, like a piano solo, and there's a rest and you hear him either, it's something either in the piano or in his stool and it just squeaks right in the middle of this like completely silent gap. And I I clipped it and sent it to Pliny when I was mixing. I was like, do you want me to take this out or do you want me to just leave it in? And that's honestly the kind of stuff that that is the question with, with that sort of music is it's like, it's kind of sounds like a dude just sitting at a piano, just playing a solo. You know, you can kind of hear, it's the same when you hear like, um, you know, specific symphonic recordings where you hear the pages being turned on on the the notation and stuff like I kind of like that vibe in certain situations hear the audience members coughing yeah 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 shuffling around in their seats and stuff like that it's kind of cool in certain situations I think have you ever heard the remix of Opeth album Deliverance ah uh, the remix uh, the probably rem not as much as I've heard the the original okay. which is an obscene amount but um, I haven't heard the remix enough we've all heard the original obscene amount yeah but yeah. they've got it remixed with all natural drums oh really yeah I don't have a problem with the original mix, but apparently they did, obviously, because they got it remixed. And um, yeah, yeah, it's a it's natural. It's wow. the remix is natural, and uh, it's weird, as in it sounds so much cooler. I think, damn, because it just sounds so much more intense. Because you can hear the the performances, but I guess in lots of ways it's a lot more imperfect. I'm one of those strange Opeth fans that. Uh I actually find Deliverance is probably my favorite album. And I barely even really caught on to Blackwater Park and stuff like that. Like I definitely like Blackwater, but I, I, I'm not that into it, to be honest. And it's not because of any reason. I don't know. I just really got into D Deliverance a lot. Deliverance is great. You should check out the remix. Yeah, but I oh, mean, I got to check that out. That sounds crazy. I would definitely be into that. I have to hear it after this, actually. I like it better, honestly. Yeah, I can, I can get that for sure. Like you said, the original mix has definitely like got its own thing. And I think being at a certain age when I listen to it, it must just feel like home to me, which is why I don't really have any problem with the mix at all. But it would be interesting to see the whole really ultra natural sort of thing going about it. That'd be fun. I was thinking of that because you said that, you know, you could have a band that you're used to hearing in a natural setting and then they try mm. something different, you know, a heavier mix or something. And really that all it is is heavier editing or yeah. louder samples or whatever. And so the I think that that's what the Andy Sneap Deliverance mix is. Yeah, I agree. Compared to all their other work. And then you hear the Deliverance mix the way that I think that they wanted it and it fits a lot more with 
everything else that they've done. Yeah, wow. But I love Andy Sneap. Oh, me too, man. He's fucking God. I was listening to something at the gym yesterday and I remembered it was mixed by Andy Sneap. It might have been like a job for a cowboy record or something. And uh, I was just, yeah, constantly reminded how much I love Andy Sneap. <laughs> that guy can do no wrong. No, he really can do no wrong. It's interesting because uh, people would always say that his stuff sounded the same and his stuff does not sound the same. No, no way. That guy's got like, he's got that perfect uh, approach to things where it's it's very much like he, he still serves the music and he serves the songs as an engineer and doesn't just manhandle his way through things. And, you know, he doesn't say like, you know, it's my way or the highway basically and just processes it to death until it sounds like every record he's ever done. He definitely gets in there and, and really allows it to be itself while also just doing the right processing that it needs. Yeah, and he doesn't really take projects he doesn't like. That's sick. It's interesting because I talk to a lot of URM students and one of the things that a lot of the very early on students talk about is, uh, is you know, working with only stuff that they like and, uh, and sometimes they will get very discouraged if we have a band on Nail the Mix that they don't like, mm-hmm. which I think is really dumb. You should mix it anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when else are you going to get the chance to work with stuff at that level, even if it's not to your taste? But uh, yeah, I think that that's the dream, though. The dream is getting to the point where you can only work with uh, artists that you like. And um, I think that that's total luxury. And anyone who's gotten there congratulations basically yeah absolutely sounds like you're getting there that's always it's always the goal for sure but um at my current state i feel like all i'm really trying to do is find very like-minded musicians and bands that are i guess like the first thing that i really hope they tick is that they really really care about their music some of the earlier stuff that i did when i first got into mixing i was kind of finding myself going way harder at the stuff than the actual people that wrote the music like they were just, it wasn't so much that they were, I don't but know. You if care was, more than the band. Yeah. And it was weird. It was really weird. It was just like, I would slave over this stuff. And and most of the time I really do try my best to tap into the headspace of almost like I'm, I'm an additional band member of this band at the time. And, and it allows me to care about the project as much as if it was my own. And yeah, like in the early days, obviously I was just finding myself doing way too much work for people that didn't hear the details anyway and didn't care about the details too much. And that's not like, it was just like very minor things, but it was just these things that I kept noticing adding up, adding up every time I jumped into that. And I would slowly work my way up to a point where I would stop saying yes to every project, <laughs> which is probably a, a healthy thing for me. And yeah, having just a little bit more flexibility and... Um, just having the ability to, to pick and choose a bit more. So the next checklist is on the checklist, checklist sorry, is uh, to kind of see if I can uh, be quite involved in the engineering side of things because most of the time I'll, you know, there's, there's too many times where I've worked on a great record with some really good musicians and stuff like that, but it just hasn't been engineered the way it needs to be or, or maybe uh, there's been a lot of problems and stuff like that with like mics dying halfway through the section, uh, the session or like, you know, over-edited drums or samples and stuff thrown all over the top and I don't get to choose whether I have samples on the drums or not and yeah. weird <laughs> things like that. So if I can get in and like kind of be much more hands-on in that stage, that's a big plus for me. And uh, and then the final one, obviously, just um, being able to choo- pick and choose the, the bands that I work with based on how good their music is and how hard they really want to go at it and 
all I really want to find now is more bands that just give a shit, put tons of effort into the the production of their records, and uh, we just kind of join forces and make some cool records. If if that's the uh, the absolute outcome, I'd, I'd be totally stoked. I th- really do think that your career as a bassist doing what you do really helps you carve that niche out to where those are the bands that you'll tour with. Those are yeah. the bands that you will socialize with. So I think that people who are going for a music career should be very careful about a plan B because the moment you have a plan B, you're not really working very hard. You're not working as hard as you could for plan A and somebody else will work that hard for it. But the exception, in my opinion, is when you have two things that feed each other, like what you're doing with your bass playing career and your production career. When you have two focuses that work in tandem like that, I think it's super powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely a, um, a good point that you made about it being a social thing. Like I've definitely, you know, got a lot of my clients for my mixes from just touring with them or meeting them in certain countries around the world or something like that. Um, or they'll be friends of people that I know. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things they get to know you as that guy that also engineers stuff. And then they're like, you know, you're going on a tour promoting the band that or playing bass for the band that you also mix. And everyone's like, oh, the new record that you're touring with sounds great. And they just work together really well. Like you were saying, there is always a point where if you focus too much on on plan B, then, uh, or plan A, sorry, that plan B does dilute itself and someone's going to come up and, and kind of... Uh, you know, just make that more of a, a thing than you're used to. But the beauty of me doing like the whole touring world thing, and I say this a lot to people, is they're just, it's almost like the introvert versus extrovert personality types where if you were to, uh, you know, sit in a studio like I do and it's quiet and it's controlled and if that one one second of music wasn't perfect, I can roll back for the entire day and perfect it if I need to. Whereas, you know, the touring world is just like, get on stage and most of the time I mean we do headline tours but we're still we still do a lot of support stuff so it's like kind of get on stage play your shit get off you know if anything goes wrong deal with it it digs into your time you know cut a song whatever that is it's just like that's just how it is so it's very um very different and some people would find that conflicting but I find it almost uh, like they benefit each other because it doesn't allow me to settle into one comfort zone or one safety net, I guess. Well, I don't know how you feel about this, but to me, one of my biggest fears in music was to become one of those people who hits a certain age and then just autopilots into misery, like basically (laughs) sails it off into a miserable existence where they just start to hate it and start to, uh, you know, start to hate touring, start to hate recording, start to just hate their lives and don't really see a way out of it. But I think that giving yourself the opportunity to mentally reset that often is a really positive thing. Yeah. And I didn't really notice that. I mean, when I first started touring quite heavily, which wasn't too long ago, really, it was maybe like 20, 2015, 2016. 2016 was definitely like the first real intense year of touring for me. But it was a matter of, at first, I just had too much on my plate. I was playing for like two bands most of the time throughout Europe and in North America and stuff like that. And uh, I was also trying to mix a whole bunch of stuff or do edits on the road while I was sitting on the bus. And good luck with that. It became so unbelievably overwhelming. It still took me a while for some reason. I don't know why I didn't realize it sooner, but if there was one thing to take away from that, I definitely needed to uh, get used to saying no more 
even if a project was come, would come along, it's not the end of the world if I just can't do it. And at the time I was kind of prioritizing touring because I don't know, like being a bass player in a very weird niche of music from Australia getting to tour the world was something that I don't I didn't really know anyone that was getting that opportunity. So I thought I may as well take advantage of it as much as possible while it lasts. Like if it dies tomorrow, then it dies tomorrow. But at least you did it. Yeah, just because I don't know, it's 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 pretty rare. So I should be grateful and just take advantage of it. Developing that over the years of touring and engineering and, and mixing more, I found myself trying to look after myself in a way that was just a bit more logical and a bit more, you know, yeah, just, just thinking about my schedule and, and what I can actually fit into a day's work. So, you know, saying no to stuff and hopefully finding a point where I can just get into those records that are, you know, maybe someone's willing to wait till I get off tour that I can jump into it. And those are the people that also probably care enough about their music in the first place to wait for the right guy to mix it. And in that case, I guess I'm that guy for them. Speaking of trying to work while on the road, it's really, really hard to do. Dude, it's ridiculous. It's honestly one of the worst things I've ever done as a professional, you know, whatever. Huge thing that I definitely should have caught on to much earlier. I know so many people who approach tours with that intention because we're going to utilize that downtime. Yeah. There's so... Oh, there's but, so much downtime too. It'd be great to just have like a nice little mix room somewhere and get, you know, six hours work done or something like that in a day. It'd be great. Just doesn't work out that way. Yeah, like shitty little in-ears on a bandwagon that, you know, while everyone's like trying to hang out before the show is not really going to, uh, not really going to cut it. And, you know, I've still gotten a ton of jobs from the stuff that I have done mostly on the road and that's fine. But I come home and I listen to it like, you know, once I finish the the tour or something like that and I'll, I'll throw the mix through my monitors and I'll be like, it sounds like a completely different person mixing it. And, you know, it's not something I'm really, I've, I've got to maintain a certain sound, I think, if I want a career in this this field. And it's, you know, being that inconsistent is not something I'm interested in. So it's not worth trying to cram it in. So when you go into tour mode, it's tour mode. And when you're home, studio mode yeah when again it's way better for the for the headspace too like you were saying being able to let the uh the two coexist completely uh separately is is really good instead of just constantly blending the two yeah it's almost like when you're blending the two you're not really uh getting the opportunity to do one all the way yeah you don't get that separation i think completely giving yourself to one or the other of of those moods is is where you really benefit and if you don't then you don't it's kind of diluted Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. 
You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low-end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Lots of people have asked me, and I'm sure they've asked you too, how to get a career as a mixer. And I really do think that one of the best things you can do is become a good musician and get into a band. Uh, I mean, all right, so this is, not everyone can do this, but get into a band that people like. But even if you don't, and you just write your own music and you put it out there and you make it sound good, that's already a huge plus. Absolutely. And much like the touring thing that I was saying before, it's um, it has been a huge benefit to my my career as, a, as an engineer to be able to play for bands that yeah, are good. <laughs> like it, it definitely helps just people saying, Hey, do you wanna do you wanna come on a tour with us and play bass for us? And then you turn up and the music's great and the people are great and they already have a, a solid following and stuff like that. It's like it's very convenient for sure. I guess at that point it's up to me to make sure that I uh maintain that and reflect that in my other work as well. That, you know, if I'm considered to be, you know, good enough to play in these bands and stuff like that, then uh, I want to be able to be considered good enough to produce that stuff. And it's just the same as going back and and figuring out what I need to practice on bass to be that good. Um, I need to get in the studio and work my shit out until I can kind of produce mixes and records that sound on that level as well. So you see it kind of as a similar sort of discipline, even though the techniques are different. Yeah, I mean, the amount of times I think about like people saying... Because I never went to audio school or anything like that. I did do a degree playing bass at a school, but there were these tiny little side elective courses that to finish the degree, you kind of had to choose something outside of just playing bass. So there was a whole ton of things. There were songwriting courses and all this sort of stuff. And I just chose basic audio technology when I didn't really even do any any recording at home at all myself. And I get a lot of people asking me, like, you know, how did you get to where you are without school and, or any, like, formal training? And I just think back to it's the same as bass. Like, I did a ton of practice. I would honestly just sit there with my, you know, my dad's laptop that I he borrowed from work and I would download some sketchy recording software and uh, I would just plug in some cheap guitar that I had with some makeshift interface that I borrowed from someone, write 30 second shitty songs and completely suck for years until I figured out, you know, one little thing. Oh, high pass on, on distorted guitars is a really useful thing. So I'll start doing that. Or, you know, certain compressors on snare drums sound really cool. I think I'll stick to that for a while. And and it's honestly, you just, it's like playing an instrument, you know, you're going to suck for a while and you just got to keep. You suck a little less and then suck a little less. As long as you're analytical and, and critical of yourself um i think it's really important to to separate that ego and really be aware of when you are sucking and 
there's no better thing. I guess most musicians know this nowadays where we can all record ourselves. Um, there's nothing better than being able to record yourself to really realize where, where you're at as a musician. But then also if you try and mix that, you understand how important a good take is. You understand how important, you know, maybe your mixes can save a bad take. You know, what can you do in your mixes to save a bad take? And you, you're kind of shaping all those skill sets at once. You know, what you do, were just saying made me think of uh, something that my first producer told me, which is, uh, you never get good at music, you just suck less. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely it. There's always, I mean, you know, the day that you start considering that you've, you know, really conquered the instrument is the day that you start really sucking. As yeah. soon as you start waking up and patting yourself on the back and going, you know what, you're really fucking good at bass. Like, congratulations. That's just like, that's a dangerous spot to be in because you just, there's nothing pushing you to, to try anymore. You think you have conquered it. And that's the same with any other skill set, you know. The day that I start thinking that my mixes are absolutely phenomenal is the day that I probably just get comfortable and maybe stay stagnant at that level or get worse, you know. You know, it's, it's weird because you have to have enough confidence in your work to put yourself out there and go for it. But at the same time, you can't have too much confidence in your work. It's this weird line. It's the tightrope that you need to walk. Yeah, I mean, referring back to that, that point I was making about the two very different states of mind with touring and with studio work. I mean, the actual concept of playing a gig almost sounds so absurd when you've, you've been in the studio for so long. When you're sitting in this quiet room that's, you know, very, very controlled and relaxed and, and you, you know, it very, very much feeds my uh, control freak side of me. And then I go out and you're literally standing on a stage pretty much with lights just shining on you and you're demanding to be looked at. You know, you're like, look at me, look at me and look at all my like, you know, technical ability and look at the stuff I can do. It's like, it's a very egotistical thing to do. <laughs> I guess being aware of that is is helpful. Um, again, if I went on, on stage and I was just like, yeah, I definitely deserve this and started just like cheering myself on, that would <laughs> that would be again problematic. But um, yeah, it's, it's a weird, weird headspace to get in. It is a weird headspace to get in, but Man, I know a lot of amazing engineers who do feel like they kind of suck when they really, really don't. But obviously they don't think they suck that bad if they're going to put their stuff out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if, you, if you're letting it, you know, if you're throwing it on YouTube for the, the comment section to go nuts on, then you must have some sort of faith in it. It's weird though, man, because nobody who's really great ever seems to feel like they're really, really great. And so when students get insecure about their progress. I get that that's uh, frustrating and hard, but I really think they need to just figure out a way to get used to it because that feeling never goes away. Absolutely. I think it's a huge thing to be aware that, yeah, it really just doesn't go away. And every one of their heroes probably feels that on some level, like, you know, in some way, shape or form, you know, and it could be just really minor things. Like I'm sure you know, some of the best engineers and the, and the most, you know, skilled and experienced mix engineers in the world still might sit around and like put together a mix and, you know, maybe you're three days into a record, they're like, you know what, those toms are just kind of shitty. I'm sure they still have those moments and they still have to revise and they still have to, you know, the first thing they always reach for isn't always perfect. That's probably the most important thing. And and in this in this game, it's very much important to to realize that you got to revise things. You got to, you know, take breaks, come back with fresh ears and do all the usual things that you do as a rookie, even to this day. Where do you draw the line though, between revising versus killing something? That's probably one thing for me that eats a lot of my time is I really like to be really detailed with things. I 
tend to sit in a mix for a long time and really listen out for a lot of stuff. Sometimes I'll even have a checklist of certain things or, or I'll do a mix and I'll go to the gym and when I'm there, I'll listen to that that mix, which is not sometimes not the most inspiring thing to listen to at the gym because it just sounds like work. <laughs> but I try and approach it like as if I'm just another music consumer and I'm listening to it on my headphones along with the other bands that I'm listening. I start picking it apart. I'll write notes in my phone as I'm at the gym and I'm like, okay, too much sub frequency, kick drum can be quieter, blah, blah, blah. And I'll just write down these little things. I'll go home and make those tweaks. But yeah, it's, there is a point where you've got to be realistic. I like to take quite, quite some time on my records if the clients allow it. And if not, then usually it's, it's almost a case of whether it's worth me doing just because I think my, my sound and my productions take time for me. You know, I'm not the fastest engineer in the world to get stuff done, but I think when I, I finish it, I'm happy with, with the general sound of it. Um, and I just realize and I recognize that that's, that's what it takes is just effort in these weird little details. So it's a fine line though, where I can just, I could easily spend it, you know, too long on it and just drive myself crazy. I don't really know where I, I abandon it because that's definitely the sense of it. I, there's that common quote where a mix is never finished. It's just abandoned. Yeah, but then sometimes you can mix something to death, like mix the life out of something if you keep going. I'm definitely the kind of person that needs to step away from a mix quite often, whether it's like when I, when I finish a really big record um, or something that I've been working on for quite some time and maybe it's for a very particular band or you know even if it's just like, a smaller band or someone's first record or something like that, but there's just been a ton of effort put into it. I check with the client if it's cool that I literally take like three or four days off from just listening to it. And maybe I'll start another record. Maybe I'll do nothing for those three or four days. And if they're cool and their timetable is more flexible, then that's excellent because I can just come back to it with incredibly fresh ears, line up all the tracks and have a good listen to it somewhat in the headspace of an engineer, but also again, like a music consumer. Yeah, just feel it out. I think that's like, I, I need referencing, man. I need to go back and and really take my time with things. That's, that's a huge part of it. I think that if you know that about yourself in this day and age, it's that much more important for you to work with like-minded uh, clients because of the speed at which things are expected at nowadays. If you're going to go against that, it's really important to work with people who get it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have no interest in trying to churn out a record in, you know, three days or something like that. Is is and that's no shade on anyone that can do that stuff. If you can do that, you're you're a mutant and it's unbelievably sick to be able to do that. But yeah, I just for whatever reason and maybe it's something I've just never practiced. Who knows? It could be one of those things that it could could definitely be something I could and you know, I'm always trying to uh, streamline my workflow more and stuff like that. But yeah, some of the some of the things you hear about people, you know, some of the most the sickest records that have ever existed are done in like a week or a week and a half. And it's just like, okay. Like, I mean, I'm I'm talking like, yeah, they tracked it as well in that time and you're just like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how anyone does that. Power to them. If you can do that, go for it. That kind of thing just drives me a bit crazy if I try and do it. And I'm never really stoked about it. So I've just, I guess I've figured out what my thing is and I'm just going to try and work on my strengths and keep working at that. Well, I think that there are artists out there who understand that and who want to take time on things. Yeah. I think like, I mean, again, going back to plenty stuff, there's been a lot of records that we've done where the recording circumstances have just been vastly different. He's always just tracked stuff at home in terms of guitars, which is cool. It allows him to really get his his lead lines down a lot more uh, fluid and, and the way he really wants them. I've always done just the bass at, at my place and, and you know, we've 
depending on the drummers we've worked with and the studios and stuff like that, we've gone all over the place. But um, the last one we did was definitely the one that took the most time. It's also been a few years since he's done he's done a full length album, so it probably felt like it took quite a while as well. But we we have had chats since finishing the record, and he was really happy with uh, yeah, just I guess sitting down and taking and giving the music it's the time it's it's worth and it what it needs uh, without any because I mean there's been a ton of things that have jumped in the way of the previous records. You know, tours have pretty much been the main thing. I tracked a lot of the bass for his Sunhead EP while I was in Europe. All the other, we have this joke where a lot of the guys are going out and like somewhere in Germany, just eating like pork knuckles and partying and enjoying themselves. And I was stuck in this really cheap hotel with a bass, just like knocking out some bass track DIs while uh, trying to finish the back end of the record. So yeah, I think like him valuing how we did the last record uh, in the sense of, you know, how much time we dedicated to certain things and how much detail we paid attention to on every single step of the way really came into the light in this in this process and in this record to the point where I think he doesn't really want to, from what I've heard and from what he's mentioned, he doesn't really want to do it any other way now, which is sick. Like I wish every I wish every client was like that where they were just like, yeah, let's just go all out every time. I think it takes a special kind of musician to... Totally. Special kind of person to be cool with that. It's interesting. You would think that everybody would be all about going all out, but they're not. Yeah, I just wonder if... Um, it's that that sense of of understanding, and do they really know when, like you know, how far it can get or how good it can really be? If you tell someone, hey, if you give me an extra, you know, week on this record, it'll be twenty five percent better. Can they hear that twenty five percent, or do they really care about that twenty five percent at all? Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. I've definitely been in that scenario where I asked for that extra week because there were things that definitely would have made it better where the powers that be were not into the idea, gave no fucks. I mean, that's crazy to me, mainly because I'm also a musician. So I guess like I try and relate it back to if it was something I was writing or if I something I'd, you know, I mean, every record takes, for the most part, from what I hear in, in the stuff that I'm doing, it takes months or, or even years to put together. And it's like, what what is a week to all that? Like if you can promise yourself that you're going to have some like pretty you know substantial improvements with a week's more effort that doesn't even involve the band it just involves some other guy sitting in his house or in his studio for that week why not you know it's definitely a thing it's an unfortunate thing but it's a reality and that's something we've got to work with some way or another well what do you think about deadlines i guess because the times that i've been blocked from doing that have been because of deadlines somebody else had a deadline which is a very real thing I feel like you have to balance the artistic ideal with whatever the business deadline is. Yeah, I, I try to um, outline it a lot in the beginning of you know uh, setting up the record and you know when we're talking about how many tracks it is and giving quotes and all the basic stuff. I definitely try to outline that I how I work and how I like to take a little more time and I like that maybe the. I find out if there are any definite deadlines or if there's, you know, a soft deadline that needs to be kind of, you know, that, that, that could be moved around in, in the worst case scenario or something like that. Um, I think it's really good to know that. And I don't think I, I work and take advantage of that. Like I don't try and plan on having a soft deadline. If someone says I need it done by this date, then I hit that date. But if there's any point where, you know, we're coming up to it, I'm like, it would be really good if we could do this instead or if I could get you to re-record this one part. Because there are some moments like that, you know, very, very small things, but it's usually just an engineering issue or a technical problem of some type. 
maybe I need like, I mean, that's the thing. It's also a lot of people don't really separate the, the mixing from the producing. And sometimes people will be like, hey, how can you make this song better? And a lot of the times I'll be like, oh, you need to double this guitar part or can you, you know, send me another DI of this thing and I'll reamp it, which is obviously a little more, little more outside of just the mix realm, but it really does enhance that stuff a lot more. And that's the stuff that pushes into deadlines. And as long as the, the clients understand that sort of stuff, that's great. Um, I'm not really working with a ton of bands that are on like massive labels or anything. So I'm sure I'd be battling very aggressive deadlines uh, if that were the case. But at the same time, I'm really happy where I'm at in terms of the indie guys that I'm working with. Seems to be more and more of a thing in this field. It is. Guys trying to do it themselves and they're doing it well. So power to them. If they're not becoming broke and they're not like driving themselves insane and someone else has taken all their money, then I'm definitely all for that. Man, over at Riff Hard on that podcast, we have, you know, we talked to lots of guitar players and mm. more and more and more of them are completely indie and they're all in these genres. It's specifically in these progressive genres. Maybe I'm just noticing it now, but I don't think so. I think I've been paying attention for a while. I feel like now more than ever, there's just a lot of guitar players specifically who have figured out how to just do it without a label and they do it just fine. Yeah, and I think it's it's such a strange sort of field to be a part of in the first place that maybe there's not like, you know, the world's most lucrative, you know, financially lucrative career um, waiting for them at the end of it. But at the same time, it can be a really, really decent income if you just like, you know, again, go indie, do it yourself, take care of yourself, look after your own ins and outs. And um, I guess that's clearly a pretty um, pretty interesting thing for someone to want to chase as a as just a general musician. But um, yeah, I think, I think if you're a relatively switched on person and you're willing to, to do that work, because I know that Pliny does like a lot of that stuff in terms of just like, he's obviously a, a great songwriter and a great guitarist, but he spends a lot of his time just doing the boring management stuff. Yeah. You know, talking to people about, you know, talking to booking agents and, you know, logistics and stuff like that and, and managing himself. Um, and, he's, you know, he's got, he's got certain people on his side helping that stuff, but it's all um, circumstantial. You know, he's got people helping him book tours and things like that, but it's not like, you know, everyone's handling everything himself, you know, for him and he's paying a ton of money to do that. So it's it's definitely a, definitely a career that is worth chasing if you're willing to put in the effort, just like as if you would to write music or practice, you know, sit down for a few hours a day and do emails and boring shit like that if it's important. I think also this kind of music lends itself to that because it doesn't need the types of distribution channels and the same type of promotion that a big label would offer. Totally. It doesn't need that. It kind of, it exists in its own, it's like in its own little universe, basically, where it kind of pushes itself if it's good enough and impressive enough. Yeah, I mean, it is a very strange like genre to really think about if you consider what is expected of the average musician in this scene. And it, you know, that the I say prog, but it really does stretch out quite a bit further. But, you know, almost the same way that that uh, the lineage of of technology has kind of directed us, but everyone's expected to engineer their own guitars at the very least these days. And everyone's expected that they can pretty much program drums at the at the very least. And most people can operate a door, you know, in, in very basic sense at the very least. And there's just like a lot of self-sufficiency um, expected of us, you know, whether you're an up-and-coming musician or if you're a guy that's kind of been doing it for a while. So I guess that's just another facet. It's just another 
avenue to go down once you've, you know, learned all the guitar stuff and you've learned all the stuff about Pro Tools or Logic or whatever. And um, you've learned all the things about, you know, shooting your own videos and you start getting better lighting and better camera gear. And like, you know, it just seems to create uh, a community of these people that are very self-sufficient in most most aspects anyway. So I guess going down the, the self-managed independent path is is an obvious one for most dudes which is cool it's really cool to see unlike a lot of other parts of the industry and i know people um in other genres will laugh when i say this because they'll say that they don't really have an industry either behind them but it's just not true there there's other genres where there is an industry behind it and where uh, a musician doesn't have to assume all roles that doesn't mean that it doesn't help them to know how to operate a DAW and shoot their own videos and take control of their careers and understand the money part. But in progressive music, if you don't do that, you don't have a career. I mean, you're so right. It's not only just the fact that it's it's helpful for your career, but it's almost like expected of you that you have to kind of have a pretty good grasp on, you know, being an all-rounder in this sort of field just to just to kind of survive in a weird way yeah which is really cool in my opinion i think it's uh it's really cool that there can be such a deep skill set in a in a community like that so i was talking to somebody who works in publishing who they would hire out different songwriters for different placements and this isn't like for movies and stuff this is for like commercials and yeah Stuff that's not very cool, yeah. but that takes up a lot of space on earth, basically. Yeah, totally. The bad music that you hear and everything that you don't <laughs> yeah. think about where it came from. And they were telling me that the uh, most reliable people out of all the different writers that they had were always the metal guys or the progressive guys. Wow. Because they were just self-sufficient. You ask them for something with certain instructions and they would just do it and that's cool. Get it back to you. There was no manager to get in the way. They didn't have to go to some studio and then like yeah, yeah. go through all these steps and work with all these different people. They just get the assignment and return the music. Yeah, that's that's funny you mentioned that. I was um I remember being told a few years ago by a friend I won't name, but they were basically getting like one of the one of the greats of the metal world to play a guest guitar solo on their record. And he was telling me like, oh, it's going to be really sick. You know, I can't wait to, for this guy to do it. And then he told me the process of it. And he's like, oh, it's really funny because this dude's so old school that like we've literally got to book studio time for him oh my in God. this country that he lives in. This guy's got to go into a place and set up his amp and like get it all rigged up and get some sounds going just to track this like, you know, 20 second solo and send it over to me because he doesn't know how to plug into an interface and grab a DI or anything like that. It's just like- I believe it. Completely different world to him. And he's, you know, this dude's like a, a god of the 80s. So it's- like that's cool you do your thing and clearly that's just what he expects because that's all he's ever done but that's like you know he could have saved himself most likely thousands by just plugging a guitar lead into a computer and just going for a few takes and probably having more flexibility that way it's such an interesting thing definitely having more flexibility (laughs) yeah yeah i've heard about those kinds of stories it blows my mind that they still take place yeah because I feel like I I do know a lot of old timers who have totally adapted. Mm. So it's weird to me when there's with these weird ass holdouts. <laughs> I think it's really cool when you see some of the older guys like adapting. Yeah. If they were living in this time period when they were coming up, they would have been just the same dudes that are, you know, pushing to do everything, you know, get good at shooting videos, get good at audio and they'll be just those guys. So it's cool to see that stuff for sure. 
in some ways when those old schoolers adapt, they're scary because uh, they have all the old skills, especially in the studio. They, if they adapt successfully coming from, you know, the analog world, like someone like Andrew Sheps or something. Yeah, yeah. Those are the most frightening ones because they can do everything. Absolutely. Because they just got it all. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine being that good. It must be really sick. Must be really sick to feel that way. <laughs> but the thing is, I don't think he feels that way. No, no, for sure. No. Again, it's one of those things where the kind of guys that are that good are still telling themselves that they're not that good. I mean, I think he told me on the podcast that he doesn't feel that way. <laughs> so, Excellent. Yeah. Good to know. It's good to know it doesn't change. No, that's why I'm saying it doesn't change is because I've talked to so many people now who you would think, all right, this person has to know that they rule, like, this yeah. stuff is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, that's good. I think that's something really important for a lot of people to recognize. It's usually only when I talk to like 19-year-olds or something. They got it all figured out. Yeah, they, they think they <laughs> fucking rule. Life hasn't uh, taught them that they don't yet. Oh, yeah. It'll happen. It always does. Oh, yeah. Of course. So out of curiosity, you were saying that um, the first time you went to the studio, you went with a high school band. Yeah, yeah. And you weren't interested at all in it. Then why do you do it? Yeah, well, that, that's, a, that's a funny thing. I was probably like 15, 16 years old. Maybe I could be, you know, give or take a couple of years. But um, I was in this like hardcore band in high school. And we were like, okay, cool. We got a bunch of songs. Let's go do an EP. We know this place. Let's book some time. It came down to me, you know, just kind of sitting in on some of the sessions and stuff like that. And I'd never been in a studio, like a, a proper studio of any form up to that point. I remember just watching the engineer sit there and he was using Logic, funnily enough, which is what I use now. And even then, I was just completely overwhelmed. I don't know why. I remember him just like getting me to play a ton through. And this was like legit, like, you know, I had a bass, like a bass amp mic'd up and stuff like that. It was very very no no di shit i mean we might have had a separate di but honestly i had no idea yeah just watching him do his thing and like sit things in a mix and kind of just even at a tracking stage was mind-blowing and and really overwhelming because i was already just in my own headspace about trying to get my bass parts down there was i don't really know what happened it was like the whole time i just thought it was this like phenomenal skill set that this guy had i was like dude this this all sounds so good and it's all so like wild what you're doing and watching him pull up like you know parametric eqs on the screen and just like carve shit out and do some wild stuff it was just it all just yeah caught me completely off guard to the point where i was like i'll never get good at this stuff and i literally said that to myself and i don't know why i wasn't trying to neg myself out but it just seemed so so far gone that i you know even you know i was, I was 15 but uh it seemed way too much for me to try and tackle and then i think way later in life when i started doing that base degree i did those really simple you know, introduction to audio courses. And I got to basically just doing some really simple classes on navigating Pro Tools and Logic, um, just getting around working with MIDI instruments and just like playing around with that sort of stuff. And uh, I, th I think as soon as I demystified the, uh, the functions of a workstation and like, you know, what each button does and where I need to go and how I can undo things if I make a mistake, it became way less scary. And um I just remember though, as soon as I figured all that stuff out, it was honestly within a week or two that I was absurdly passionate about getting into audio more. It was just as strong as the first sensation when I wanted to first play an instrument. As soon as it wasn't like looking at the cockpit of a spaceship and not knowing mm. what the hell is what from that, as soon as you figured out what the hell's what, 
then you're into it. Totally. I guess if you, you put it down to an instrument or something like that, as soon as you realize what notes you're playing and if you can reference it to maybe when you start reading tab or something like that, you look at a number on a page or a, a dot on a page and you go, okay, cool, this relates to this instrument on you know this fret or whatever. And as soon as you start like breaking down the physical boundaries of like either your technique and your actual playing or in a audio sense, like just what you're staring at and what all these buttons do, the more understanding, obviously, the more comfortable you're going to be. I think it also just opened up what was actually possible to me. You know, when I first learned how to play guitar, I was like, holy shit, I can just start drilling out all these Metallica songs that I've wanted to do forever. So I just <laughs> would do that. And then with audio, it's like, as soon as I figured out that stuff, I was like, man, now every band I'm in, or even when I'm sitting around bored at home, like I can just start tracking demos and they sound semi-acceptable at that stage. So I was like, it, that was mind-blowing to me and it was really, really exciting. And it just, that's what pushed me to, to do that practice I was talking about where I just constantly write 30-second songs and just practice playing and, and mixing. Were you looking at it as practice when you were doing it? No, I wasn't really. I was really, really driven. It was like something that I needed to do. The same as like, you know, when you get passionate about an instrument, it was like, it's so fun and it's so gratifying when you start, you know, just picking away at certain things and getting seeing that slight improvement every you know week or so that um there was just those days that the same as where i'd be up until the early hours of the morning playing bass in my bedroom i would be sitting in my computer room just trying to work on drum samples and make things sound cool that way and it was no different looking back on it just out of curiosity when you were writing the 30 second songs and getting into it i'm just trying to understand how often were you doing this like do you remember the elapsed amount of time? I guess it would, it would ultimately um, depend on a few things. One, how good I was at guitar at the time. Two, how good I was at songwriting at the time. And three, how good I was at mixing at the time. Um, depending on those skill sets would definitely delay the process of it all. To give it a, a rough average, it was probably every like two weeks. I was just knocking something out, maybe maybe even more, but they would almost always be connected. Like I would finish one song, work on it over the course of a week or so, maybe take a couple of days off, then start another one. And it was simply like driven by passion to do that. It wasn't, oh, I better start a new one this week because I haven't done one in a few days. It was just, it would usually be like, I would listen to a new band and I would want to write something similar, but at the same time, I wouldn't want to like release it because it just sounds like a complete rip off of this band. <laughs> you know? I get asked a lot about motivation, people who have trouble with motivation and I don't understand that. I have a hard time knowing what to say because people that I know who have gotten really good at something, whether it's playing or mixing or running a business or whatever the hell, they don't try to be motivated. They just do it. They just want to do it. And even when they don't feel like doing it, they just do it anyways. It's not an issue of motivation. I have a hard time telling people that because they think I'm being a dick when I say <laughs> maybe you're not really that into it. Yeah. And maybe it's just a, a, a sense of they need to recalibrate what they're actually into. Which is fine. Yeah. And I think like there was a lot of points in my mixing career, for example, where I was not questioning whether I should continue it. I just questioned how long I could do it for that intense period of time because it was the moment where I was just putting too much on my plate and ultimately it was just more so the fact that I needed to work towards that goal of having the ability to be more you know picky with my clients finding people that are more like-minded that was always a goal and I just had to tell myself that I was working towards that point point. Mm -hmm. and now that I'm there I honestly think I'm probably the most satisfied I've been 
with just the the clients. I'm still working my ass off, like, you know, all the time, but it's just a matter of whether I'm enjoying it or not. So the motivation is there because I genuinely love the bands that I'm working with and they're genuinely allowing me to just do what I want to be doing with it. You know, if someone gave me a mix job and they were like, oh, I just want you to mix the drums, it'd be like, I like mixing drums. I really like mixing drums, but that's not what I'm trying to chase at the moment. Yeah, Maybe I would have done it a few years ago if I needed the, to pay rent or if I needed to, you know, hopefully work towards maybe grabbing the mix on their whole record the next time if they were a really good band or something. But um, yeah, it's just a matter of really knowing what you want to be doing. So you were able to identify the difference between not being into mixing versus not being as into it in this moment because you're working with the wrong kind of clients. That's kind of important. Super important. Really, really important. I think um, I'm a very like self-analytical person and I, I pull apart everything I do, whether it's playing or if it's it's audio stuff. I think it's constantly important, not in a way that you just belittle every single thing you do and, and make, you know, point out all your flaws, but it's more so the fact that it's... Uh, it's just good to know what you like and what uh, drives you and what you know affects you positively and negatively. So the more and more that you can define that and quantify all those things, then the more you're able to be happy in the field that you're working in. Some guys, I know some guys that love editing drums. Yeah, me too. I genuinely love editing drums, which uh, that's, a, that's a mutant of a type of person to me. God bless them. Absolutely. Like I, I love... I have a weird passion with with drum editing. I really do like it sometimes, but it has to be something that I'm absolutely 100% committed to, which is very rare in terms of just like, I don't know, I have to be really specific about it for some reason or another. For example, like Pliny's record, I split the drum editing up between myself and Mike Malian from Monuments. Shout out Mike. Yeah, good old Mikey. There's a lot of stuff to handle in a short amount of time. And I just thought, you know, he's one of those guys that's clearly a very, very, very capable drummer. And he's also got his editing chops down. So he was able to understand what our drummer Chris was doing, which is some pretty pretty wild stuff at the time. But yeah, it's just a matter of me going, you know what, I don't want to do a ton of drum editing on this record. As much as I love Pliny's music and as much as I had fun getting in on it, I would prefer more to move forward and get into the mix and stuff like that. There were a few particular songs that I really wanted to have my hand in um, in the editing just because of that kind of where I pick and choose what is edited from an almost like an artistic point of view and what I think that both Chris and Pliny were intending with the section. So obviously instead of me trying to convey that to Mikey, I could just do it myself and, and get it done. But there's definitely no way in my life that I would ever be a guy that just sits down and edits drums for a living. As, as much as you could make that a career, it's like, I just know that that's not a thing. It's not a thing for me and I won't have a very happy career if I do that. There are some people that it, that's maybe not their entire career, but a good 80% of it and they love it. It's wild, but it's like, I know, I get it. I get it in some degree. You need all types, I think. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's where they come in handy. And, you know, you can find those people to work on your records. And it's funny because those people also will completely perfect a, a drum uh, performance in terms of editing and they won't give a shit about mixing it. Yeah. Whereas when I get edited drums, I'm like, man, I can't wait to throw a mix on this and see how it sounds and like start really tweaking things. Like as soon as the editing process is done, the only reason that drives me to get things edited is because I know how good they're going to sound mixed. So I'm really excited to get into the mixing side of things, but they're just happy to abandon it at the like worst point <laughs> where they don't get to enjoy anything. I see it a lot like uh, the traditional guitar luthier. Mm. I've never understood why someone would want to 
do that instead of play. Yeah. I like, I just don't get it. Like I know I have some friends who build guitars for fun. I mean like the person whose passion in life is to build and fix and set up guitars instead of making music. Yeah. I don't understand that one bit, but I'm really happy that those people exist. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, imagine, you know, imagine spending months or even years on some guitar builds and, you know, they 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 do every single detail and they know of all these particular measurements and certain, you know, specs that you need to get to make this absolutely phenomenal guitar. And then as soon as they finish it, they take some photos of it and give it to someone. It's it's like that is the most the most backwards way about it in, in my sense. But at the same time, that's coming from someone that plays guitar. So there's got to be another sense of passion behind that, that maybe the, the end goal is just getting the photos of it and seeing it in its final form. That is the end goal for them. I think that's what it is. I mean, this is why, though, I think it's important for people to try to develop as much self-awareness as possible and to try to be analytical, self-analytical, like you were mentioning earlier, because if you're beating your head into a brick wall, basically, and really having a hard time motivating yourself and not enjoying it, it could be that maybe you're working with the wrong kind of people. That's definitely a possibility. It could also be that maybe there is something in music that's for you, but maybe you're not doing it yet. Yeah. Maybe it is something like that. Like you're meant to be a guitar tech. You you look at like all the all the guys outside of just being musicians and like, you know, involved in a tour, like you're saying, guitar techs or, or managers, you know, tour managers, venue managers, live sound engineers and stuff like that. Most of them have a background in playing some instrument. They've just figured out that they've, you know, worked somewhere a bit better or maybe they weren't totally into it enough to make an entire career out of it. And, and and that's fine. Like, it's not like you're a failed musician or anything. You just found what you were good at. And that's more important, I think. Instead of being stubborn and just sticking at it for the sake of trying to prove something, you've decided to, you know, efficiently go about things in a, in a very uh, intelligent and mature way and just be like, you know what, this is actually what I like. Like, if I woke up tomorrow and I realized all I want to do is produce records like Jamiroquai, then I would go nuts and go do that, you know, like that's... Jamiroquai. Dude, I would love to actually work on a record like that. Haven't thought about that guy in a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, I've got to I've got to be aware that that's what my thing is and I got to be comfortable sitting with that um, as opposed to trying to fit a certain, you know, expectation or anything like that, I guess, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I think it's weird because I don't think other people expect it of you. I think the whole idea of, like you were just saying, they're not failed musicians. They're just people who figured out what they're good at. Yeah. But I think internally, some people might be afraid of making those types of moves. For sure. Because of this weird dialogue they've got in their head concerning that they will feel like they failed. I think it's definitely a thing of, of concerning yourself with what other people think way too much. Yes. You know, you're going to be thinking about the guys that you started playing music with and then they watch you put the instrument down and do something else. And what are they going to say or what are they going to think? Or are they still going to want to hang out with me? And it's like, don't, don't fucking worry about any of that stuff. As soon as you go into that field that you're better at and you feel more comfortable, you're going to attract people that are also way more like-minded in that field. And it's just, everyone, everyone wins, really. It's a way more healthier headspace to be in. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, how far into things were you when you made the realization that you were just working with the wrong clients? Honestly, it took some time. And I, this is probably one of the biggest things that I wish I could probably tweak if I had any, I don't want to say regret because that sounds really dramatic. But if I had anything that I could make some adjustments in my past, then that would definitely be something that 
I left too long to address. But I would say I probably took maybe five or six years of grinding to really start noticing that. And then maybe a couple more years to really start putting in place better things to look after my not only like mental health in a way of just like not overworking myself and and burning myself out, but also just to improve my career, you know, finding those people that worked like I worked. I think there's a danger though of people try to make those moves too early. Totally. Because I think at the beginning, when you're first learning who you are and refining your skills, you're not good enough to pick and choose. And you shouldn't think that you are. You should just try to work on as much as you can so you can get as good as you can. I think that was definitely a part of um, of my headspace that I was kind of just like, well, I'd gotten to a point, especially during the touring thing when that really fired off, where I, I had to quit my job. I was teaching uh, private music school and it was great and I really loved it and I did I did it at multiple schools for like seven years or so um, and it was really cool to be able to you know make a living off teaching music but as soon as the touring started taking off I found myself telling my boss and my students that oh, I'm not going to be here for the next three weeks I'm not going to be here then and I'll be back then and we'll have to make up some lessons and stuff like that I didn't want to be that teacher in someone's upbringing where I would just be flaky and all over the place. And I did genuinely care about my students to the point where I was like, it's better if I probably just dip from this and completely quit. But that for me was like, holy shit, I'm, I'm quitting my day job to do, you know, to tour prog metal around the world. That's probably one of the most ridiculous things I've ever thought I'd do. So that's probably a pretty good indicator. Yeah, it was also that. It was like, well, if it's becoming that much, then I need to quit. I need to do this and I need to somehow make it sustainable. So yeah, like part of it was just saying yes a little more often to the projects that I, I maybe weren't exactly stoked on doing or um, less than ideal situations. Maybe it was like, maybe the music was cool, but the engineering wasn't up to scratch or something like that. And just seeing how flexible I needed to be to just make that work in my career at that point. And yeah, it definitely, I guess it definitely is a point where it's like, you don't really have a choice to just, I couldn't sit back then and just be like, hey, uh, there was definitely points where I wasn't even had anything to do with Pliny and I couldn't just sit there and dictate who I was working with at all. No way. So sometimes you just got to do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You had to work your way up to that. And um, yeah, I just think that it's important for people listening who are going to be influenced by this to understand that as awesome as that is and a good goal. It's something that happens once you're into your career. Like you're already making money with it. You're already developing a rep or have developed a reputation. You've already worked on stuff. You're already in demand. Once you're in demand, then you can start working with that demand and uh, making, basically tailoring your life to your own specifications. But until there's that demand, you can't really tailor your life uh, without clients to tailor it with. Yeah, I think you've very much got to be just comfortable with the fact that going into any sort of career like this, especially that there is going to be a stage where you're just eating shit for a while. Whether that's worth it or not is is up to you. And if you really want to push through that and really grind through it, you know, I'm not going to say that's a guaranteed way to a perfect life, but it's it's definitely seems to be the way that most guys get there anyway. You've got to work through that shit. I don't really know too many people who didn't. Mm, exactly. Same. I can't think of any, actually. No, ex- exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, someone will probably think of an example of someone who got big on TikTok or something when they were 15 and then that was it. They were Their career was just set, but that's an anomaly when stuff like that happens. Yeah, absolutely. If we're trying to be realistic about this and you're just trying to be an average dude that wants to make a living 
then yeah, this is more so what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. More than likely, if uh, somebody listening is going to create a career, it's going to be like that through a shit ton of grinding for a really, really long time and through slowly carving out a niche. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Do you think that specialization is a good idea? And I'm asking this because um, clearly you're specialized and that's working for you. Yeah. I had a teacher when I was doing my base degree that I got to the end of the, the whole degree and he was kind of just like, okay, pretty much every class was just him drilling me with certain things and exercises and, and weird chord changes and stuff like this and th- all my weaknesses. And then at the end of it, he was like, well, you seem to be really particularly situated in sort of this prog world. You have a sound and you have kind of an approach. Obviously, everyone's still learning and I still have a lot to go. Even even to this day, I have a whole lot to learn. He was like, it's got to come to a point where you consider, you know, if you want to work on all your weaknesses and, and figure that stuff out, then maybe you'll be a really good all-rounder and you'll be a session musician playing for pop gigs and stuff like that, which is cool. But I don't, I didn't think I ever really considered myself trying to chase that. I wasn't really, that was never really the goal in the first place. But at the same time, I was, I didn't really have a goal. I just wanted to play bass and get really like, you know, get as good as I could be at it. And then at the end of it, he's like, maybe work on your strengths. Maybe just keep pushing this and specialize in just really focusing in on on what you do and be try and be the best at, at what you do. And that bit of information was insanely important to me, more so than he probably realizes. But it's just the fact that I'd never really thought of of, I don't know, like doing what I was already doing, but more so and just constantly and constantly. And I realized that over time that it's, it's still very much a thing that is developing. Um, with touring, for example, it, it really tends to limit creativity a little bit. Obviously, I'm spending so much time learning everyone's material. Some tours I'll be playing for three bands and I'll be just spending all my time practicing and you know revising material and getting stuff together. But I'll get halfway through through the tour and I'll realize how consistent my playing is being just small things like that. Like my right hand, my picking hand is just really consistent and I'll be really happy with that. And I'll listen back to some things or I'll just notice it halfway through and be like, cool. Like, you know, I was struggling with this at the start of the tour. or I was really, that was the one moment I was concerned about. And now I'm just drilling through it. So thinking that I was already, you know, the prog guy doing the prog bass thing, there was still so much room to grow, even though I'd been absolutely hammering just that for so long. And it's the same thing now. I could still get so much better at bass. Um, and it's just a matter of kind of trying to uh, to realize that I have, you know, even though they're my strengths, my strengths still have their own weaknesses and I have miles to go. Well, what's interesting though is I wonder if he would have given the same advice to everybody or not. I think it, probably he heard something unique or defined and identified that maybe it's a good idea to pursue that, but I bet you that there will be, or there have been other students who may have been skilled, but didn't have built in direction that probably wouldn't have gotten that advice of do your thing. Yeah. And I I think like I'd never really been told that in the sense, or I'd never even really been told that that was a thing at all. Like it's always, you know, work on your, on your weaknesses. And that's just a thing in life in general is like, if you got something you're not good at, you should, you know, and it's a concern of some form, you should get better at it. That just seems like such a, you know, simple thing to, to state. Yeah, I guess, I guess maybe that was a thing either way. And it's like mixing. It's like, there's, I very much kind of put myself in the world of this prog metal sort of thing. And that wasn't really intentional, but I do like the variation of the genre, like, you know, how different certain sections and stuff can be and, and, 
how varied the music can be is kind of a, a very welcome challenge because, like I said, it can really go from like a more metal, just straight ahead, progressive sort of thing to a fusion, jazz, whatever sort of vibe, electronic elements and stuff like that, which is, you know, the other end of the spectrum. And it's it's cool to be able to throw in it, you know, in the deep end and trying to just sort of work my way out of it all. But um, that's a strength that I think will always be something that I need to focus on and I need to develop over time. I'm, I'm confident in it, but it's, yeah, it's good knowing that I'm not perfect at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, knowing that you're not perfect at it is what will keep you working at it. Mm. Simon Grove, thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Totally, man. Thank you for having me. Anytime. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition... Do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.